Good morning, church family. How's it going out there? We ready to go? We ready to study God's word together? I want to jump into that in a moment, but I did want to, um, uh, I did want to do a couple things first. And uh, I know that Debbie is already up here and talking about it. Pastor Matt just talked about it in his prayer. But I, too, want to just add my voice to saying that I am thankful to be part of a church family who wants to be uh, so active and loving and generous and serving our community. So this last Thursday, Trunk or Treat, just a small glimpse. That was just one example of, of the awesome ways that God works in and through you all. Uh, but I'm thankful for you and appreciate your participation in that. And such an easy uh, thing when we pull together. We're better together, you know, when we uh, all play our part. And uh, when God works in and through each of you, it was just really apparent and really fun to watch on Thursday. So thank you uh, for being part. And um, the thing that stood out to me, I think, was uh, one thing that stood out to me was I had a conversation with several of you that were involved in giving away free stuff. Isn't that a fun job? Really, everybody that served at uh, Trunk or Treat got to give away free stuff. And I, and I talked to people who gave away free hats and free candy and free food and free games and, and all that. And uh, maybe you got some of these reactions, you know, like, okay, so how much is that? People pulling out wallets. No, no, it's free. Uh, you know, wait, this is free too? Wait, I can just have one? Did you get any of those kinds of results, uh, uh, responses? I talked to several people that did. Isn't that fun to be able to do that? So thank you for being generous. God is so generous to us, and we want to be generous to others as an indicator of his love. And so that was a fun thing to be able to do together. Well, we are calling this series of messages that we're in Better Together. Uh, it's, a, it's a sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians in your Bible, a letter written by a leader named Paul to a group of Christians in a town called Corinth. That's why they are called the Corinthians. So this letter is written to the Corinthian Christians, believers, in a town called Corinth. And um, we want to be reminded today that we're better together. Because we've been reminded, perhaps in several ways as we've studied this letter, that, that left to ourselves, when, when on our own, we tend towards self. We tend toward what's convenient, what's preferable for us, what's comfortable for us, and how we would like things to go. But Paul is exchanging letters with this church. He, he started this church. These people became Christians because he proclaimed the good news of Jesus to them. And he started this church, and now he's been gone for a period of time. And Paul's writing this letter back to them going, hey, wait, what happened? Where'd you go? You forgot some important things. Your behavior doesn't match up with the good news that you received. And so he's writing these letters back and forth because we all, too, like the Corinthians, tend towards self but we're better together. Church family for the Corinthians was messy and broken and full of sinful people, but God was working. It's clear as we study this letter, and that's true of our church family too. We're better together. We can be messy. Church family can be difficult. Getting along can take work, but God is working. And so um, as we think about being better together, I think it's good and exciting to celebrate together how God is working among us. Does that sound good? Should we do a little bit of that sometimes? Things like the fact that if not every Sunday, pretty much every Sunday at Faith Church, there's new people here coming to see what God is doing here. Visitors, our guests, people that are looking for where God might want to plug them into a church family. And I think that's exciting. 
And we want to be ready for those people. We want to be a church family who is greeting and receptive and welcoming. And I see that. Uh, something I think that God is doing in our church family, you know, in the last couple of months, I know at least a dozen, maybe more of, of you that were not connected to a life group have now found a life group to be part of, a place where you can know others in our church family, such a great sign of health and life in our church family. A few weeks ago, we had a new friends lunch, a bunch of people there indicating interest in this church family. That was exciting. And then today at about noon, we have a membership lunch. Again, a ton of you signed, a, few of, a bunch of you signed up. Uh, to find out what is, it, what is this church membership thing about, people that are saying, this is my church family, this is where I see God at work, and I want to be part. So, some exciting things going on, wouldn't you say? Right on. Hey, well, I'm not going to manufacture responses. But you guys be yourselves, and be excited about what God's doing, and that'll really help me out up here, Okay. But part of being better together is uh, the difficulties of being church family. Part of being better together is doing the hard work of getting along and working things out. And, and that's kind of where we find ourselves in this letter the last couple of weeks, including today. Um, so let's ask God to teach us how we can be better together. Um, I, sh- I meant to say this already, but it's been on the screen. Hopefully you opened your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm about to start reading at verse 1. Love you to bring your Bible with you so you can open it. And see that what I'm reading is not what I'm making up, but what God's word says. Okay, I love you to pull out your Bible or your Bible app on your device and follow along with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's ask God to show us what he has in store for us this morning. Starting at verse 1. I'm going to read the whole passage and then we'll pray. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom, or that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Father God, we open your word this morning as we always do, and uh, we are in need of you teaching us through your word. So, Father, we know that uh, individually 
we are messy and sinful. We know that collectively, the Corinthians, collectively, we here at Faith Church uh, can, can be a mess as we figure out what it means to be a church family and how to get along and how to care well for one another. So God, I pray that you would lift our eyes this morning off of ourselves, off of earthly trivial matters to what really matters, and, and, and that being your great love for us through Jesus, that, that you have purposed through Christ to rescue a people for yourself. God, we, we know you have done so much for us. Would you lift our eyes from down here to up there, thankful for all you have done for us. And, and in doing so, God, this morning as we study your word, would you help us to live out our identity, to live out who we are. You have rescued us and transformed us and forgive, forgiven us. May we live in light of that. God, would you use this, this passage, would you use our lives as you see fit so that we can glorify you in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I have a unique challenge this morning as I teach God's word. The unique challenge that I have as I teach God's word this morning is that all of you, your stomachs think it's already time for lunch. So we're going we're gonna to really concentrate on what time it supposedly is, right, and not what time our body is telling us, and we're going to know that God's word is, is relevant and living and active and applicable to us today, amen? That uh, while, while difficult passage, I think there are very practical things for us to, ha- to learn from God this morning. And then there is some glorious good news that I can't wait to get to. Okay? Back up to verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? The key to, one key to thinking through this passage this morning is that the specific sin that Paul is addressing, this church leader is writing to this church, he's heard a, a troubling story, he's heard about two uh, fellow Christians, brothers in Christ, who are dis- in a dispute, and one is, is going the route of taking him before the court. Okay, And so the one thing we need to understand is that, the, that Paul is writing this morning to address a dispute between believers, between two Christians. And what he seems to be saying, what he, not what he seems to be saying, what he is saying here in these first few verses is, why go to court when you could first handle it amongst fellow believers, amongst fellow Christians? Why are you running off to court Let's first settle disputes, work together with, with each other, with the help of fellow Christians to get along and to figure it out. That's Paul's thrust as we get started this morning. Um, and, and I will say this, and we'll come back to it. Some, uh, some people have heard this verse, studied this passage, and made a, a blanket assumption that a Christian can never sue another Christian. Uh, that may not be necessarily true, but let's come back to that. But for now, Paul is wondering, and we're about to keep going in verse 2, Paul is wondering, do you know who you are, Corinthians? You're Christians. You've been saved. Jesus has made your life new. You've been forgiven. You've been rescued. You're being transformed. Do you know how you, who you are? And if so, if you know that you are God's people, are you living as such? As followers of Jesus, have you grasped the implications of your identity in Christ. You're rescued, forgiven, transformed, and we need to live as such. Not living down here, clinging to self, worried about others, disputing, fighting, bickering, but looking to the Lord. Verse two, or do you not know that the saints, that's a word for believers, 
Or do you not know that the, the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we're to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? There are various places in scripture that give us, the, that indicate that the people of God will participate with Christ in this eventual judgment. Whoa. Okay, first and foremost, we often don't really want to think about it, but we need to first and foremost come to grips with the fact that there will be a judgment. Jesus will return and hearts and lives will be judged before him and your spiritual destiny, the, 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 the consequences are eternal, whether with God or, in the, in, or, or doomed to hell. Weighty matters hanging in the balance. There is a coming judgment and, and scripture seems to indicate that that followers of Jesus, seated with Christ, seated next to Christ, will in some way, and I'm not sure I totally get it, but will in some way participate in the judgment of others. And so he's saying, man, if that's the situation, since that's the truth, if you're going to participate in that way, are, are you not able to try trivial cases? Can't you help with some of these earthly disputes? Uh, I will say this, when you and I are struggling in the midst of earthly matters, does it, feel, does it always feel like small and minor and trivial? Uh-uh. When we're dealing with difficulties, when we're in the midst of something in this broken world, relationships that are frustrating, bickering and not getting along, hardships, suffering, things that we face, they don't feel like trivial matters. They feel very big. But in the light of eternity, in the scope of who God is, the King of kings, Lord of lords, creator of the universe, the one who's not let things spin out of control. Things have not gotten out of his hand. Are you with me on that? He is seated on high. He knows all. He sees all. And in the light of that, perhaps our earthly matters are a bit more trivial than we first thought. Would, would, we, would we be able to agree there? And so, so Paul says, man, if, if this is the case, if this is the big picture of what God is doing, and you're to be part of that, that he has a role for you, then, then can't you help solve some of these small problems among each other? In light of God's truth of who we are as his rescued people, Paul wants us to live like it. This passage written by God, I believe, through Paul, writing this letter, God's saying to us this morning that, that we must know our identity of who we are in Christ as, as forgiven and rescued and transformed and then live like it. Live out our identity as, as those that will in the future be reigning and ruling with Jesus Christ. Trusting God to work out these earthly matters. Verse 4. So if you have such cases, why do you put them before those who have no standing in the church? Why do you go to unrighteous? Why do you go outside of the church family to have your disputes uh, settled? And so here's this, this clarification we want to get back to this morning about, okay, well, what does this mean for Christians and lawsuits? And do I sue? Can I not sue? And I don't think it's necessary, and I'm not just speaking for myself, I'm speaking for other scholars and commentators about this passage that are way smarter than me and people coming to the conclusion that I don't think we necessarily need to apply a blanket statement that, we, that a Christian is never to sue another Christian. Why? 
Well, for a couple reasons. First of all, Paul's, in this letter, this case, what, in our passage this morning, the, the situation Paul is addressing seems very specific to this believer and that believer, and it seems to have to do with money or property. So could his exhortations be specific to that example and not meant to be applied to every example? With me on that? And then also, um, you know, so, okay, well, I'll go back to that. So what's the situation here? Corinthian Joe has somehow been defrauded. I don't know what his name is, but it's one of the brothers in this church, Corinthian Joe, has somehow been defrauded by brother Corinthian Bill. And so Corinthian Bill is going to take Corinthian Joe to court. And, and that's the a dispute that Paul is writing here as an example about. But Paul's preference would have been for the believing community, the fellow Christians, the church family, to be used to settle the dispute. Paul's preference would be for these two men, Corinthian Bill and Corinthian Joe, to first try to work with each other, to first seek the help of godly, wise counsel from fellow Christians. So far, so good? Now, about that, do we ever sue another Christian thing? Well, we need to take into account the whole counsel of Scripture. We need to not just take one passage in Scripture and go, okay, here's what we know now about lawsuits among Christians. Instead, we can look other places in the, in the Scriptures, like Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, and we see that part of the way God puts authority over us is through the governing authorities that we have in our lives. In the United States of America, we have governing structures, governments and courts and leaders. And, and God says in his word that one of the ways that he has authority is through the authorities he puts in place. And then therefore, we as Christians are to submit appropriately, to live under appropriately these authorities. Why does God put these civil authorities in place? Because one of the ways that God be, uh, can address wrongs one of the ways that God can right wrongs, one of the ways that God may bring about punishment, consequences for evil or wrongdoing is through these governing authorities. And so there are times then, as a follower of Jesus, when we submitted to the authorities may need to, of course, recognize that rather than taking revenge into our own hands, rather than taking matters into our own hands, there are times in which we turn uh, disputes, we turn punishment, dispersing punishment, over to the authorities. It's one, one of the ways that God may right wrongs. But in this case, in this passage, in this situation, Paul is saying, hey, my first choice is for you to handle it amongst each other, within the church family. So let's keep going, verse five. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Well, one thing that's interesting here is that like last week's passage, Paul addresses a specific sin, but then he also has plenty to say to the whole church family. Last week, Paul addressed a specific sin, a sexual sin of one man, and he called that man out in this letter. But last week's passage, he continued on to 
to say to everyone else, to the believers around that man, how did you let this happen? What was your part? What was your reaction or lack of reaction? And very similarly, in today's passage, Paul addresses a, a specific problem, a sin, this brother taking his fellow Christian to court. But Paul's even, God, I think, through Paul, is even more disappointed with the, the believing community's response or lack of action, allowing such a sin to continue. Because for, these, for this person, for Corinthian Bill, to have turned to lawsuit mean that, means that he is unwilling to reconcile. He has said, I'm not willing to reconcile with my brother in Christ. I'm not willing to do the work. I'm not willing to come together. I'm not willing to ask fellow Christians for help in the matter. I'm rejecting reconciliation, and so I'm taking it to lawsuit. And, and Paul is not only upset with Corinthian Bill, he's a, a, upset with the whole Christians, uh, the community of Christians around them who are letting this happen, who are not jumping in to help, who are not um, urging them to find reconciliation first uh, amongst each other. So the, the preference here is to, to find, to solve disputes Christian to Christian, to solve disputes with the help of godly wisdom of Christians around us. And then you know what the second option is? It's not even the lawsuit yet. Well, you know what we just read in verse 7? Why not rather suffer wrong? You can't be right. You can't have your dispute settled. You can't prove yourself to be right. Why not suffer wrong? I mean, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That's tough to hear when we would prefer to be right, to defend ourselves, to get to the bottom of it, to go to court, to fight it out. But like Jesus, who went to the cross and suffered wrong, so do we. So might he call us to. So might it be the best thing in some situations to suffer wrong. So, so this passage has plenty to say, and we talked about this a little last Sunday, and I'm going to remind us again. How do we go about solving disputes in a godly fashion? How, as a church family, do we honor each other, go to each other, work things out, strive to get along in a way that is pleasing to God? This passage is making it clear that we may not know the circumstances. We may not know if we should sue or not sue. We may not sure, be sure exactly what the problem between Corinthian Bill and Corinthian Joe was. But here's what is clear from this passage. What's clear to me from this passage is that, that a dispute between two Christians ought to be handled with care and intentionality, with, with seeking objective outside uh, wisdom, biblical counsel. Why? Because the world is watching. Because the world is watching, wanting to nail Christians for being hypocritical punks who don't practice what they preach. And Paul said it in this passage when he said, to go to a lawsuit is already a defeat for you because it makes you look bad. It makes Jesus look bad. The world is watching and unnecessary lawsuits are a defeat is what Paul said there. And so, so the world is watching, then how do we behave? Then how do we work together? Then how do we settle disputes? Then when we see sin in someone else or when there's a misunderstanding or when we're not sure how to handle a situation, what do we do? 
Well, especially where sin is involved. Last week we talked about Matthew 18, and I encourage you to jot down Matthew 18 and go read it later. There's some really helpful, practical principles there. If you see sin in a fellow Christian and you want to handle it in a God-honoring way, Matthew 18 has some great principles. Step one is to go to them one-on-one directly and talk to them. If they don't listen, there's a step two. If they don't listen, there's another step, et cetera, et cetera. Go check it out. But the, but the main idea there is that we want to utilize the church family, even the potential of church discipline if needed, to bring about correction, to bring about authority in people's lives, to bring about peace and unity in a church family. And so wherever possible, looking for that uh, objective Christian wisdom, biblical counsel, to, to help with a dispute. How are we doing? <laughs> so far so good? That was important stuff. That was important and very practical in our lives because sometimes we don't get along with each other. Surprise or no surprise? <laughs> okay, so that's very practical stuff. But I got to tell you, the rest of the passage is even better. Are you Ready? The rest of the passage is even better. So back to our passage. Paul is going, hey, why do you take your cases before non-believers? Why do you take your disputes before the unrighteous? And I got to tell you that verses 9 through 11 have some spectacular news. Bad news first. You can't have good news unless you have some bad news first, wouldn't you say? So we're going we're gonna to grapple with some bad news, and then we're going to get to celebrate some spectacularly glorious good news. Verse 9. Or do you not know, why are you bringing your disputes before unrighteous? Do you not know that the unrighteous, verse 9, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Persistent, ongoing, unrepentant sins, like we just mentioned, should call into question a person's salvation. We should wonder if they're actually a Christian. Now, I have to back up. I firmly believe that if you have been saved by Jesus Christ, that he will hold you forever into a life eternal. Okay? If you are truly a Christian, God will not let you go. I don't believe you will lose your salvation. You will find life eternal, life now and life eternal. Done, period. And yet, this passage written to Christians who are followers of Jesus is listing out sins and saying there's some serious implications here for this kind of continued sin. So one thing that we ought to allow God to do in our, in our hearts and lives is consider that if these kinds of sins are continuing on, then perhaps we are not among the, the saved. The, those whose behavior is indistinguishable from the unbelieving world around us may not be saved, may not be among God's people. This sin, list, this sin list that we just read identifies what the wicked are like, what those who are apart from God continue to behave like. This list talks about what the unrighteous are like. And what's the result? They won't inherit the kingdom of God. They won't be present with God into eternity. They won't find the blessings of life with Christ. And then verse 11. And such were some of you. Paul writes to the Corinthians. Paul writes to the Corinthians, 
hey, wait a second, you just heard me rattle off that sin list. Don't just go, ha, ha, them, they, those guys, those bad people, those unrepentant sinners. Verse 11, Paul says to the Corinthians, and such were some of you. Those sins were true of some of you. This is how some of you used to live. Gratifying self, rebelling against God, going your own way. And some of us today, too, faith, church, God's word, living and active, written 2,000 years ago, and yet absolutely applicable to us today. Some of us, too, that was our previous life. Out, outward, blatant, unrepentant, big sin. Some of you, such were some of you. And even if we don't relate to that list of sins, even if we're not sure we can place ourselves there, even if we would say that, uh, not me, such were some of you, just some, not all, not all, not me. But can't we say that all were slaves to sin? Apart from Christ, we were all enslaved to sin, going our own way, putting ourselves first, rebelling against God. Maybe our sins weren't as outward, weren't as public, were internal unseen. Verse 11 continues with an amazing, spectacular word, but. I got to tell you, some of my favorite Bible passages, some of the best, most glorious good news that the Bible has to offer come in Bible verses that start with the word Reminds me, I'm going to leave our passage for a minute and go to Ephesians 2, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Ready? I'll just read it for you. Early in Ephesians 2, here's what you read. Here's what we hear in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once lived. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body. And we were by nature children deserving of God's wrath. But verse 4 starts with a great word. What do you think it is? Verse 4 starts with, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith in Jesus. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, not a result of trying hard, not a result of having to match up. God's word says, and this, is, this salvation through faith is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Back to our passage, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There is a lot of good stuff going on there. Ready? Can we take a quick look at it? There is a lot of good stuff going on there in verse 11. You have been washed, sanctified, and justified. You have been washed. This, this word means you have been cleansed from the guilt and power of sin. And the word washed should remind us of baptism. Baptism, getting dunked in the water, doesn't actually wash off your sin. 
Getting dunked in the water is not what makes you a Christian. Getting dunked in the water is not what rescues you. But baptism is an important, obedient thing that followers of Jesus do. And it's symbolic of being washed, of being forgiven, cleansed from the power of sin. Is that good news? You've been sanctified is a similar term. If we, have, if we are sanctified because of Jesus, it means that there's been a break from the power of, and practice of sin in our life. It, it's that something has changed where, where sin had power over us and where we went our own way and we went against God. Now being sanctified, there is a break from the power and practice of sin. And sanctified also elsewhere means that we are being transformed. That as we live like Jesus, we become more like Jesus. We are being sanctified. We are being made new. We are being given a new heart, new mind, a new attitude. God is transforming us from the inside out. We are washed, we are sanctified, and we are justified. And justified is a word worth taking a minute on. No matter how many times we may have heard it, no matter how many times we may already know this truth, let's sit for a minute and consider the glorious good news that in Christ we can be justified. The holy and perfect almighty God of the universe, holy and perfect there, you and I here in our sinful mess, broken and going against him and, and, and left to our own, unable to match up, unable to save ourselves. The word justified means that, that what has been broken between God and us has been restored. We are justified. We are made right. We are connected back with the holy and perfect God of the universe. In Christ, followers of Jesus, you have been justified. And here's an incredible, one more incredible thing I want to tell you about. When the holy and perfect God of the universe looks upon you, followers of Jesus, he sees righteousness. And at first you might want to raise an eyebrow and go, wait a second, if I think about my life and I know the realities of my heart, let me ask you if, you, if you reflect on yourself and you take inventory of your life and words and actions and deeds, would you say to God, I'm righteous? Anybody? Not me. Not me by far. But yet what I said was, is God comes and he looks upon you and he sees righteousness. And you know why? Because of you? Because of what you've done? Because of Jesus and what he has accomplished on the cross. There's, there's something called imputed righteousness. That there's a fancy theological term for the fact that in Christ, the righteousness, perfect, perfect, sinless life of Jesus has been imputed, has been put on you so that when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Is that good news? The gospel is the good news that God would make a way to rescue sinners like you and I through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The good news of the gospel that we proclaim week in and week out at Faith Church that we want you to proclaim day in and day out in your spheres of influence is the, the gospel is the good news that God doesn't leave us stuck in our sin and doomed to hell. That he set about a rescue plan. That the sinless life, the, the, the substitutionary death and, re, and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ make it possible for you and I to have new life too. The gospel, the good news of Jesus and the cross brings about something theologians call the great exchange. 
The great exchange is, is amazingly good news. The great exchange says that those who have submitted to Christ, those who have put their trust in Christ, those who realize you can't do it on your own and you've truly become a Christian by surrendering to Jesus and saying, Lord Jesus, save me, lead my life. The great exchange is that our sin is upon Jesus and he takes it to the cross and dies where we deserved it. Our sin is given to Christ and his righteousness is put on us so that when God looks upon you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. Not because you matched up, not because you were a good person, not because you came to church occasionally, but because Christ died so that you might live. Father God, we thank you so much for the amazingly good news of Jesus and the cross. God, we thank you for the good news that we were reminded of in this passage, that, that in Christ we are washed, sanctified, justified. Father, may we live accordingly. As, as Paul urged us in this passage this morning, God, I pray that you would help us to learn to live out our identity as your beloved people. God, you have forgiven us. You have rescued us. You are making us new. God, I pray that, that our identity in you, would, would, that we would be so reminded and so aware of your goodness to us, that you have saved us, that you have plans, that your plans are good and eternal. God, would you give us perspective that the matters of this life are trivial in comparison? Would you give us a reminder, God, that as your people, you want to use us for your purposes? So, Father, would you help us to live out that identity? God, I pray that we would reflect this morning on the incredible grace you have given us through Jesus. That while we deserved death, you gave us life through Jesus. And so, Father, would that experience of, of grace, as we've experienced that grace, would our lives be evidence of grace as well? Would your grace flow in on us and out of us as we care for others, as we proclaim the good news of Jesus, that we were previously stuck in sin and now in Christ are made new and are different than the world around us. May our lives show that we are set apart, that we are your people. Father, thank you that the gift of your salvation includes rescue from the penalty of sin, increasing freedom from the power of sin, and eventually, freedom from the very presence of sin. God, we give you our lives today. God, I pray for this, for myself and everyone here this morning, that we would each give ourselves to you in a new way today. God, whether we've known you and walked with you for a while, in that case, would you help us to look to you, to get our eyes off of self and, and, and our overwhelming circumstances and, and put our trust in you so that you can continue to use us as you see fit. And God, if there's anyone in here that is that does not yet know life through Jesus, that does not yet has not yet received the gift of salvation that you are offering today, God, I pray that perhaps today would be the day of their salvation. God, I pray that we would recognize that that stuck into off, off on our own and stuck in sin and, and continuing in, in these sinful patterns. Lord, we need you. We need you. So God, if there's someone that needs to surrender to you, would they simply pray, Jesus, save me, change me, 
help me. And God, may they find life now and life eternal in you. As we continue, Lord, we, this morning in worship and we give our gifts and we lift our prayers and our voices in song, we want it all to be in thankfulness for all that you have done. God, we thank you that in Christ we are washed, sanctified, justified. May we celebrate that together as a church family now. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.